Welcome to MediaPost's Brand Insider. I'm your host, Steve Smith, Editorial Director of Events here at MediaPost. Each week, we interview marketing leaders from companies old and new about how they build and evolve their brands on an unpredictable media and culture terrain. In addition to this full audio interview in podcast form, we also publish a companion newsletter with highlights from the Q&A. MediaPost has been covering marketing and media news for over 20 years. You can find the Brand Insider Weekly as well as our daily coverage at MediaPost.com. Now, let's get into it. Genentech is a major pharmaceutical company that is part of the even larger Roche Group. It's best known for its first uh, being the first offering the first targeted antibody for cancer and the first medicine for primary progressive multiple sclerosis, among many other uh, endeavors. Erica Taylor has been at, had been at Genentech for ten years before taking nearly a one year hiatus with Gilead and then returning to Genentech two years ago. She was appointed CMO six months ago, and part of her mission is to up the company's digital game. Erica is that rare CMO with a PhD in immunology. She'll be keynoting our Pharma and Health Insider Summit in, in La Jolla next week. And we want to preview some of those themes as well as talk about maybe some other things we're not going to get to in La Jolla. Welcome, Erica. Hi, Steve. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm excited to be here. Thanks. Um, so uh, as a lapsed academic myself, I have to ask you first about your choice of career path. Uh, you're a Stanford PhD in immunology, no less. Seems like a good point of entry for either teaching or research, but you seem to have made a turn very early on to marketing. Tell us a little bit about that. Yes, I'd be happy to. I, I often get to share my somewhat unusual background uh, to come to this role. I would say that about halfway through my graduate program, I became really interested in the intersection of business and science. And there's a variety of reasons for that. One of them, the funding environment in, in academics. Um, I loved science, but I knew also that I wanted to have a different role in seeing it applied to more patients. And, and you know, as you know, as a basic scientist at the bench, um, you're very often working on, um, you know, before first in human early proof of concept things, knowing that your work will take many years to reach a patient. I think I just wanted to get there a little sooner. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, it, that was sort of what motivated me to pursue other, other opportunities and other places that would see value with my program. Uh, so before we get into the specific challenges facing Genentech marketing and its brands, what's your diagnosis of pharma marketing right now? Obviously, drug companies have been going direct to consumer via TV and print for a long while now. But the patient journey, even treatment, has become so fully digitized just in the last few years. What are the big current challenges to pharma marketing uh, as we've known it? Yeah, this is something I think a lot about, and I'm sure certain many of my colleagues do as we've come through now this pandemic that has shifted so much dramatically. I think pharma as an industry has been arguably a bit behind some of our other consumer good um, partners in terms of being sophisticated and who exactly we target, really thinking deeply about the words direct and consumer. That now means many different things now than it did yesterday or, or yesteryears. I think as an industry, we have an opportunity and more importantly, our patients and our customers are demanding the same kind of on-demand, when I need it, there when I, I don't need it, um, communications from their drug companies, just as much as they do any other entity that they interact with. Let me uh, dig into that, because I like the way you broke that down a little bit, that direct, direct and consumer in that D2C configuration can mean a lot of different things. Tell us about a few of those. When you break that down a little bit, how do we need to think maybe harder about what we mean when we use that phrase? 
Yeah, I would say in the traditionally in our industry, we've always used DTC as anything that you see on a TV or a printed ad in a magazine. I would argue most people don't consume any content through either of those two channels. So that's why I thought you have to think about direct in a very a much more broad way. Most of us are doing this through our phones and our devices um, mm -hmm. while we're doing other things. So we do not have the attention span to sit through a long bit of information. It has to be quick. It has to grab our attention. So that's the direct part. When I think about consumer and the increasing complexity of the healthcare landscape, yes, there are things that we need to do to activate our patients, but now we've got prescribers, we've got healthcare systems, we've got payers, all of whom have a role in the decision-making for product selection, and we have to speak to them too and to their needs. Mm -hmm. And all of this in digital, mostly in digital channels. Now. I think most efficiently in the digital channels. And it just relates to just how we as humans, you know, are consuming content these days. It doesn't look like these, these vehicles are going to go. Uh, if anything, we see more of them, more social media channels, more other digital ways to reach people um, expanding. And so our challenge will be orchestrating that in a seamless way and not just going everywhere all the time and hoping it lands somewhere. So with all of those different channels and also all those different aspects of your business, be you know HCP, direct uh, consumers, how is your, because uh, we're media post, we're all about media and how people are making, uh, making allocation decisions. Over the last few years, what have been, say, the biggest shifts in your, in your marketing spend? Where have we seen the biggest changes then? Yeah, I would say our biggest changes have been mostly around um, our, of course, invest investment in digital technology, but really also data and analytics. Um, mm -hmm. you, we now have an ability to ga gather information about how things are performing through our media channels real time. We should be leveraging that to make decisions. When I think about direct and consumer in this regard, we can now get very sophisticated about the kind of individual that we're targeting because we now have the data to understand them at a nearly individual level and, and being able to customize um, to that. So that's where we have shifted our investments as an organization, both in terms of the infrastructure that we need to do, the capabilities that we need to bring into our organization and the content. Uh, does that mean a lot less TV than before? Not necessarily. I would say it's much more surgical and arguably Genentech and Roche as an organization have been a little more conservative in our sort of traditional TV media investments. Mm -hmm. I would say our position is where it makes sense, yes, but it is not the first lever to pull when we want to um, move our markets forward. There are many more that we can pull that are much more tailored and personalized. So let's dig in a little bit uh, deeper into where Genentech is in in this transition. Um, where do you uh, where do you situate your company within this larger transition among pharma? What what state of evolution are you in right now? That's a great question. Um, I would say that we are somewhat early in our journey to transform our marketing organization. I think we're later in our journeys around, again, as I mentioned, the data and the infrastructure that we need. Um, the way I sort of draw the analogy with my organization is to say, you know, we're very clear about the meal that we need to make, and we have most of what we need in the pantry to make it. Mm -hmm. And now um, my role specifically and my organizations is to start to write that recipe and really think about how we put all of this together to go faster and accelerate our businesses. Um, I've been in this role. This role has only existed for six months. So mm -hmm. in this regard, I would say we're still very much early on in our journey. I look forward to sharing more next week about not only the specifics of that, but what that looks like when you're shifting a culture that has behaved in one particular way for quite a while and really starting to bring these new ways of thinking into an organization. 
You mentioned data and that your data and analytics is a major source of investment. So I'm curious, you've got a lot of different, you have a large portfolio of brand, of different brands. I'm curious how, what sort of data inputs do you get on a patient level? Um, are you able to have access to? Because you know, you're, you're somewhat attenuated from the patient in a lot of respects because you're relying on HCPs and others to do the actual prescribing. So I'm a little, I'm curious from uh, your from your position in the in the value chain, where are you getting your data and what level of granularity do you have and insight visibility to to who the patient really is? Yeah, so I'll talk about a little bit of our data sources and just some of the complexities when we're trying to get on a patient level, because that can, right. you know, obviously comes up with compliance challenges around HIPAA and privacy and all of that, right. not to mention the new roles. Um, when we think about the data sources, um, we've invested heavily in uh, how we understand prescribing information from our decision makers, our prescribers, um, um, payers, and health systems, and where we can on patients. And, and that's where I sort of talk about the, the level of granularity that we have. We are not as sophisticated as, say, an Amazon that can get all the way to an N of one and understanding all of the things. I don't actually think we need to get that far. I, I think decision-making and how patients understand information about their health and make decisions about their health exists at a different level in terms of day-to-day. -day. You know, we're not choosing shoes and, and whether or not to buy a refrigerator. Those are different kinds of decisions. And so I think we need to attenuate where we are going to get the, the level of granularity. For us, very much a work in progress. Um, we, we don't have a large primary care footprint. So some of our patient populations exist in very rare disease states where, mm -hmm. you know, really start to but the privacy challenges. And so we're, we're finding ways to work through that compliantly, but uh, it's definitely one of our current challenges. Uh, have you had to reorganize internally, especially around data? Since you have multiple brands, are they dealing individually with their data sets? Do you, have you centralized all of this? Are you able to work across the different brands? I would say we centralize most of that, particularly when we think about data investments, how we deploy that. And so because our portfolio is so large and so diverse, um, I would say we walk a delicate balance between customization and standardization, because when you're looking at something like hemophilia, that's very different than ophthalmology. Your treaters mm -hmm. are different. Your patient journeys are very different. Um, so we're trying to walk that delicate balance. I think one of the areas of opportunity for creating a one marketing organization, as we have here, is to start to leverage learning across seemingly disparate therapeutic areas, hmm. seemingly disparate geographical areas, now that we have more data that we can leverage in that fashion, and see connections and efficiencies across ways we haven't done before. That's a little bit of that culture shift. We've been, hmm. um, we are a science first company, which is why I feel very at home here as a scientist. Um, but it also means we've spent a lot of time deep and embedded in our therapeutic areas and not as much time sort of picking up and looking over your neighbor's fence to see where we might derive learnings. I feel like part of my mission is to help our teams do that. Um, so let's let's talk about the culture shift. I know we're gonna you're gonna dig further into that at, at the summit, but I really am curious about this whole idea of culture because by definition, culture is broad. It's deeply mm -hmm. ingrained, it's a bit mercurial. So how do you get your arms around a marketing culture, let alone find a strategy for changing it at a large legacy organization? Yeah, it's 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 certainly a challenge. I will say one of my advantages right now is I've been at this organization for the better part of 13 years. And so I have 
I, I have a lot of connections and relationships that help a lot, right? You can imagine each of the therapeutic areas has their own personalities. We serve portfolio customers such as health systems and payers that has a very different kind of personality. I have an understanding of how that's all come to be in the historical context. So that's sort of how I wrap my arms around it. Getting our organization to think about marketing as one organization and a function is my greatest challenge. I'll share a lot more about mm -hmm. how I'm viewing my tailwinds and headwinds in that regard. Mm -hmm. What I think I am most encouraged by is um, my organization's excitement about what is possible, um, about doing something new and different. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned that culture is mercurial. It's also ever-changing. We have new people mm -hmm. entering and exiting our culture um, every day. And so I'm looking for those individuals that are newer, that are questioning things we've been doing for 10 years and trying to elevate some of those voices to try to keep folks excited about change and what's possible. You, you made an, an interesting point that I, I don't think that I have appreciated, um, that when very often when companies think about needing to make a radical culture shift, they often are hiring from outside. Side. They want somebody to bring in a fresh vision. But one of the points that, that you briefly made there is that your knowledge and familiarity with Genentech, knowing the people, knowing the processes, actually puts you in a better position maybe to communicate and persuade uh, for, for a real culture shift than maybe an outsider who comes in and says, I've got a whole new vision. You know, I certainly hope so, right? I do feel like there's a bit of, uh, it's more of an enticement with what's possible. Um, I'm leveraging the fact that our organization of marketers is highly competitive. And so when I point out some of the things that we can do that our competitors are not, like these are things that having been in this culture, I understand that I can tap into mm -hmm. because as with any culture change, whether you hire someone internally or externally, it's challenging. It feels mm -hmm. uncomfortable. Um, I have told my team, I said, Discomfort is going to be a known side effect of the work that we have to do. So if you're mm -hmm. feeling a little uncomfortable, phone a friend, you're doing it right, and we're going to keep <laughs> going together, right? And so really trying to encourage that, normalize that. Um, and, and to be clear, I have a spectrum of, you know, of positions among what we're trying to do, right? I've got folks that are go-getters. I've got folks that are more skeptics. Mm -hmm. I'm playing to as many of the masses as I can, and I know that I'll keep those who want to be on this journey, and I mm -hmm. might not for those who don't. I have to accept that as a leader. Uh, I know you're only six months in, but have you, uh, is there a substantial change that you've made so far that you're most proud of? Oh, wow, six months. Um, you know, one, one of the things I'm most proud of is actually just setting a vision for a Genentech marketing organization. That's sort of the first thing that you do as you come in, mm -hmm. forming marketing as a function. Um, what I'm proud of is not setting the vision, but the fact that I have an organization that's excited about it. And mm -hmm. you know, you can tell when people start to repeat the pillars of your vision in the hallways and in meetings, and I hear uh -huh. it start up in other parts of the organization. Mm -hmm. So I feel like I'm on to something. Um, and I feel like I have some momentum to capitalize on uh, as we go forward in 2023, because we've got lots to do. <laughs> um, I'd like to wrap here by going back to the beginning of your career, uh, because and your tenure at Stanford, uh, before you got into marketing. You were the first director of diversity and outreach uh, to increase diversity in the graduate program at Stanford. This is more than 15 years later, and you're yeah. the CMO of a major pharma company. Mm -hmm. So two, two questions. At, as an industry, where is pharma in its journey to greater diversity, particularly internally in employment and positions of power? 
Um, so for first, thank you for bringing that up. That was uh, one of my most interesting first roles. Um, it's interesting that we're still talking about a lot of the same topics 15 years later. There, there's a commentary mm -hmm. in there somewhere. I would say pharma as an industry has come a long way and has a long way left to go. Um, I think that um, we have to have more sophisticated views of what diversity and inclusion are. Um, I love hearing in organizations that it's not just diversity and outreach and recruitment. Those are things that get people in the door and maybe keep them there, but that's not culture, as we talked about earlier. That's mm -hmm. not equity. Um, and particularly, and I think this has been, you know, loud and clear in our face as a result of the pandemic, health inequities exist everywhere. We all know them. we can rattle them off. I think pharma has a responsibility to begin addressing them. When I think about this in a marketing context, this comes to how we communicate in a culturally competent manner. I've told my teams I hate the term multicultural marketing, not because we shouldn't do it, but because it otherizes it. It makes it sound like it's not like the rest of marketing, when in fact, we're talking to people. Mm -hmm. And that is our job, is to meet them where they are, particularly patients at very often one of the most difficult moments in their lives. And you cannot do that if you don't have a diverse and inclusive cultures in the companies that are serving these patients, right? There is a clear link and relationship between the two. Um, so I have an entire diversity action plan as an officer of Genentech that's focused on how we bring in more diverse perspectives, how we have a focus on health equity, how we make sure we're reaching patients that might not have the opportunity to benefit from our medicines and that we're finding them. Well, I think you may have answered my next question, which Sorry. was marketing, for, in terms of marketing pharmaceuticals, how and where do uh, do we go farther than just changing the casting of some old ad creative and call, and call that DEI? There, there, there's so much. Um, yes, there's the casting. There's, um, you know, I think it's not even far enough to translate patient materials in multiple languages, which to me is mm -hmm. very much step one. That's taking... An, an American way of viewing a disease and putting it in a different language. Mm -hmm. What are we doing to make sure that the meaning of the messages that we, we want to say land for people from different cultures who speak different languages, right? We all know that there are certain ways of expressing ourselves that only work here and mm -hmm. don't work in Europe and don't work in mm -hmm. South America and all these other places. Um, so I think there's definitely more, more, more places for us to go there. My goal is to have that embedded at the beginning. Your campaigns, and this is where I mentioned a bit earlier about you don't have to go to N of one, but we should be at N of many um, to think about how we build marketing campaigns, who we're speaking to, and what they're what we're asking them to do, because it may very well vary. In mm -hmm. some cases, we may be asking maybe more underserved um, populations to get screened for, for, mm -hmm. for disease states that we cover. That's a very different ask than call your doctor about this drug, right? And we have to be sensitive to that and really get to that level of uh, again, hearkening to direct and consumer, this is a, a an embedded element of that. And it just is what marketing should be. Uh, Erica, we look forward to having you at the summit next week and to hearing more about all of this. Uh, we want to remind listeners that the Pharma and Health Insider Summit is taking place in La Jolla on February 15th through the 18th. Virtual access is available for those of you who are not able to make the summit. Just go to mediapost.com forward slash events. Uh, Erica, thank you so much. See you in a week. Yes, absolutely. Safe travels. And I look forward to seeing everyone next week. Thanks for hitting play on Media Post Brand Insider Podcast. We're here each week interviewing marketing executives from large and small, legacy and emerging brands. They share their experiences navigating the challenges of commercial clutter, media distraction, and consumer disinterest. 
You can also subscribe to the Brand Insider newsletter for edited text editions of these Q&As. For this and all of the marketing and media news reporting MediaPost has provided the industry for two decades, head over to MediaPost.com. And if you have any thoughts, comments, or suggestions for Brand Insider, you can always reach me, Steve Smith, at Steve at MediaPost.com. Until next week, let's market carefully out there.